Now, as you know, we started off the year by doing what we do every year. In fact, we've been doing it for the past 20 years that we were here, that we have been here. And that is to review the purpose for our being here as a church. And we measure our uh, success or effectiveness in meeting the purpose, not according to man's standards, but according to the standards of the Word of God. And let me tell you, they are different. In fact, God himself says that my ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts above yours. Unfortunately, when it comes to church growth and measuring church growth and effectiveness of the church, we tend to measure it not by God's standards, but by man's standards. But I will not do that. As being faithful to the word of God, we have to communicate with the Bible, with the word of God teaches. And so I want to begin this morning's message as a continuation of what we started last week. In fact, what we'll be talking about for the next several weeks here, I want to begin with a thesis. The overall message I've entitled Evangelism, the New Testament Methodology. And I'm very careful in naming this because I believe that the methodology, the tactics that we have used in what we call doing church evangelism is so far from the word of God, it's unbelievable that we're doing them. It seems that we don't evaluate what we're doing. We go by feelings and what we think is successful, pragmatism, not according to principles. So we are going to be emphasizing the principles of the word of God as we go along. So here is the thesis for my message this morning. The New Testament methodology for evangelism and missions is the proclamation of the gospel backed up and motivated by a vibrant local assembly of believers whose members reflect the character of Christ by living obediently to his word. This is a combination that cannot be broken if the church is to fulfill its evangelistic mandate in keeping with the word of God. And that last phrase is important in keeping with the word of God, not in keeping with the standards of man. I believe that this is fully supported. This thesis is fully supported in the commands of Christ, in his prayer to his father in John 17, and it is confirmed by the apostolic writings, as we will see in the New Testament, what we call the epistles. So let's take a look at these three areas. First, Christ's command to love one another. It's recorded in John 15, verses 12 and 17, and also John 13, 34, 35. Now, this is a command, as you'll see as you read your scriptures, and you probably know already, that Jesus repeated again and again. And whenever you see or uh, understand that Jesus repeats the truth, you know it's important. For instance, when you read your scriptures and it says, uh, Behold, he's speaking. You take a look at what is being said because Jesus is saying something that's very important. He says again and again then, my command is this. Notice it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not whether you want to do it or not. But if you want to show your love for me, you will do what I say. Because the word tells us that we show love by obeying him. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. That's the standard. Now, the command to love one another is an Old Testament command. The new part of that command that Jesus has adds is the standard, as I have loved you. 
Not how you have loved someone, whether your mother, your dad, your wife, your children. That's not the standard. The standard that we are to go by is that our love must be the way Christ has loved us. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, in verse 17, he says, This is my command. Love each other. Love one another. It's repeated again. Remember now, this command is put alongside the command to love God as being the two greatest commandments. The two commandments in which all the other commandments, Jesus says, are contained in their fulfillment. If we obey the commands to love God and to love one another as I have loved you, we fill Fulfill the commandments. We do everything that is commanded in the Ten Commandments. Remember also that the commandments that were given to Israel were given as a standard of holiness. Many people, even Christians, do not realize that the reason for the commandments was to demonstrate the character of God, to show what he is like. And when we obey the commandments, we reflect what God is like in our lives. And so we could say, that uh, holiness means to be set apart for the purpose of God. That's what holiness is, the root meaning, to be set apart for the purpose of God. And therefore, we could conclude that a person is holy when he or she is doing what God has purposed for them to do. That's how we show our holiness, by doing what God has purposed for us to do. Because he set us aside to do that, we are demonstrating holiness. Obedience then to the commandments was meant to set Israel apart from all other nations because those commandments were different from all the lifestyle of the nations around them. It was meant by God to distinguish them from all the nations of the world as a nation that followed the one true God whose nature was demonstrated or manifested through the truths that are taught in the Ten Commandments. Obedience then to the commandments would reflect his character, what God is like. And doing that would make them to be a holy nation unto God, meaning that they were doing what God had purposed for them to both be and do. And by the way, that's also a very concise statement of a true disciple of being like Christ and doing what Christ wants us to do. Jesus is therefore saying that love for God and love for one another are the two essential ingredients that constitute a believer or a church as holy or set apart from him or set apart to him. These commandments are the two ingredients that make a believer truly and essentially different from the unbeliever. Loving God and loving others as Christ has loved us, especially members of the body of Christ. You'll see that later on. Reflects the core purpose for our being here on earth. Loving God and loving one another. This is why Jesus repeatedly emphasized this command to his disciples. Love one another. That that was to be the essential distinguishing mark of a true disciple, loving one another and loving God. Now, the impact of obedience to this command is clearly spelled out by Jesus in John chapter 13, verses 33 and 34. 
Listen to the word of God. And we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning. Because I want to impress upon you that what I'm saying is what Jesus himself is saying to you. Not my just preaching it. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I loved you, so you must love one another. And notice, if you're a true disciple, you must be loving one another. It's not an option on your behalf. You must be doing it. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In other words, the love of a believer for one another was to be so evident that the world would see it and recognize that Christians were, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ. And they were not using his name in vain. If you are a professing disciple and you say you are a Christian and you are not loving other believers the way Christ loved you, you are using the name of Christ in vain when you call yourself a Christian. They were to be like him. That's the standard of a true disciple. Not filling out certain books and finishing certain courses, although they're helpful. But the bottom line is, are you like Jesus Christ? Now, the question is, did the apostles, did the early church and disciples learn this truth? Did they accept what Jesus says? And more importantly, did they practice it? The New Testament makes it clear that the apostles and the early church did in fact do this on the whole. I can give you at least 24 specific references in the epistles from the book of Romans through Second John that shows that the apostles did in fact both teach and practice Jesus' command to love one another. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at all of those passages because this is the word of God to us and it's not emphasized as much as it should be. It, this teaching actually, I believe, was the one overriding principle that governed all that the apostles did and taught. In fact, it became their major method for making Jesus Christ known to the local communities. This was more so than even preaching the gospel, but rather it was living out, and that is demonstrating love for one another. It is said that the apostle John, of course, who wrote the epistles of John, he was an old man, and he taught this truth again and again. In fact, if you read the epistles, you'll see John mentioning this again and again. In fact, it is said that he was old. He became uh, to, in such a state that the only thing he could say when he was preaching was, love one another as I have loved you. said that that's how he died with those words on his lips. Love one another. Love one another. In other words, this was the power to their proclamation. Their love was the basis upon which they could effectively proclaim the gospel in words. And we're going to see when those two things are separated. In other words, if we have proclamation that is not backed up by love, then the proclamation is ineffective. It becomes diluted. But when it is backed up by love, it is powerful. All right, let's look at a few of these verses. Romans 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Now remember, this shows the reflection of the apostles learning and practicing the truth that was taught to them by Jesus Christ. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. 
be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Follow the way of what? Love. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. Do everything in what? Love. Galatians 5, 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another how? In what? Love. The entire law is summed up in a single commandment. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of what? Love. Just as Christ what? loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Philippians 1.9. And this is my prayer, that your what? love may abound more and more in knowledge, in depth, and insight. Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, dearly loved, set apart for the purpose of God, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. In other words, it's to put up with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. You're going to see how important Love and unity is in demonstrating the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 3.12. May the Lord make your what? Love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. This is the apostle showing that they had, in fact, listened, learned, and were practicing the truth that Jesus taught. First Thessalonians 4.9. Now about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you. This is my prayer that others might say about Calvary Bible Church. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. This is an amazing thing. Paul is saying your love for one another is being spoken about around the world, around your world anyway. But I want you to do something. I want you to even increase that love in a greater way. Hebrews 10.24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now in the context, this is speaking about what believers are supposed to do when we meet together for worship and fellowship. Right here. The King James says, provoke one another to love and good deeds. But one of the purposes for our gathering should be this very thing here to encourage one another 
toward love and good deeds. Hebrews 13.1, keep on loving each other as brothers. And listen to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, each, above all, love each other deep, deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 2.10, whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. 1 John 3.11, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should do what? Love one another. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. In other words, one evidence of the fact that you have Jesus Christ as your Savior is that you love one another. And if you cannot say that, that you really hate a brother or a sister, then you better check to see whether or not you are in the faith in the beginning place. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That simply says anyone who does not love is not a Christian. No matter what you say, no matter how many how much you give to the church, how many church members you have, if you don't love your brother as Christ loved us, then we're not Christians. That's the word of God. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's 1 John 3.16, not the gospel of John 3.16, but it speaks of love nonetheless. 1 John 3.18, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And you see, this is where the tire hits the road. And we just not say that we love, but we demonstrate our love. We don't just say we are a disciple, but we show that we are a disciple by how we reflect the character of Christ in us. That's the bottom line, and that's what we've missed out when it comes to discipleship. We're using the wrong criteria, the wrong standards to determine who a true disciple is. It's not how many verses you know. It's not whether or not you could repeat all of the books of the Bible in succession. I used to be able to do that, but I can even, I even forget what the first book was sometime now. Or whatever. It, it, it's actually demonstrating Christ's likeness in all that we do, in all that we say. Is that easy? No. That's why we cannot do it ourselves. That's why we must come to learn what the exchange life is. What it means when it says, it's not I that live, but Christ who liveth in me, the exchange life. That's what the discipleship is all about. First John 4.11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And I want you to see what he's saying here. God is invisible. Right? We cannot see the true and living God. That's what he says. However, it is a way that we can really cause the invisible God to be seen. And how is that? The same way Jesus did. Jesus became a human being and he laid God out before the human race. 
And that's why he could say, if you have seen me, what? You've seen the Father. Now remember, he's invisible. But if you've seen Christ, he says, you've seen me. The same thing is now transferred to us as believers. If we live Christ-like, we should be able to say, if you've seen me, you have seen Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, be imitators of me, even as I am of Jesus Christ. It's a high standard, but that's because God is a high standard God. God is not just a God who wants anything. You know, we like to say that God could use any old bush. Now that might be true, but God doesn't use, God doesn't leave any old bush and any old bush. He transforms that bush. He changes that bush. We cannot come to God and stay the way we were when we came to him. If there is no change, then there is no real commitment. We're going to talk about that later when we talk about the appeal of the gospel message. Verse 23, I think I read that. Verse 2 John 1, 5. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love. Notice now, he's telling us what love is. That we walk in obedience to his commands. Do you want to know how much you love God, you love Jesus Christ? Find out how much you are obeying what you know that he's telling us to do. Remember in the Great Commission, the Great Commission says, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. This is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. What he has told us. Now some people say he's talking about the Ten Commandments here. Well, of course, that is included, but it talks about everything that Jesus Christ teaches, not just the Ten Commandments, because as he said, the Ten Commandments are all wrapped up in loving one another. As you've heard from the beginning, his, his command is that you walk in love. Now, I've repeated all of those verses because I want you to understand how pervasive the teaching is in the Word of God. It's repeated again and again and again. To be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, we must be loving one another as Christ has loved us. It's quite a standard, isn't it? In ourselves, there's no way of doing it. But it's in our abiding in Christ. Taught in 1 John 15, you can do nothing without him. But if you abide in me, we can do all things. And abiding simply means obedience to the word of God. It is quite clear then, that the apostles did in fact learn, teach, and practice Jesus' command to love one another. It was in actuality the one great principle that governed everything they did or taught. It was their major methodology for making Jesus Christ known by demonstrating love one toward another in a way that was observable to the world. Now listen carefully to this statement. It was this one unique characteristic that gave power to their preaching of the gospel. Their love for one another provided a solid basis for their effectiveness in evangelism. If you remove the foundation, the basis of love as a church, our preaching, our words will be null and void. I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who said, whatever you do, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. That's what he's teaching here. Love. And this is a test, this is an exam we would ask of ourselves. Do I really love other believers the way Christ has commanded me to love? 
We have going to be talking now about another element in effective evangelism in the church. But before we do that, we're going to have the choir to minister us in song now as they come to sing, Send the Light.
right, so it's very clear from the Word of God that Christians showing love for one another is an essential ingredient for proclaiming Christ. Jesus says, this is how men will know that you are my disciples. But there's another ingredient that is also spelled out in Scripture, and that has to do with bearing much fruit. Listen to the command in John 15, chapter, John chapter 15, verse 8. It said, this is to my Father's glory. Remember, we made the point in the first message to demonstrate that the bottom line purpose for our being here both as individuals and as a church, is to glorify the triune God. Now notice, this is one way of doing that. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, but it doesn't stop there, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the way we tell others, we show others that we belong to Christ, by bearing much fruit. Now later on it says that that fruit is to remain. It's not just bearing the fruit, but it's being sure that that fruit lasts. Christ's command then to bear much fruit has the same purpose as his command to love one another. And that is that the world may know that Christians are his followers, his true disciples. It is when we put these two commands together that we get the underlying concept of Christ's methodology for our witness to the world. And somehow this is missed out when it talks about evangelism or when we talk about discipleship. Then you combine John 15, 8, the command in that passage, with Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, which deal with the works of the flesh as contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit, you will see that much fruit, fruit that will last, has to do with righteous living. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I'm going to read the full passage to verse 26. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. So I say, live by the Spirit. That's how a true discipleship, a true disciple lives, by the enablement and the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Live by the Spirit or according to the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under this law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. In other words, the same way that you can tell that a person is a non-Christian by what he does, you can tell who is a Christian by what he or she does. Notice, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. Isn't that amazing? Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. And some people say, now stop there. Some of these things are true in the church. And that is unfortunately true. It's simply saying then that those who are professing to be Christians are not living what they're supposed to be. They are hypocrites. They say they are Christians, but they're living like the devil. Drunkenness, 
orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live, and the idea is to continually live like this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, here's the contrast now, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Notice that, love, we just finished talking about that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Though You don't need a law when you do these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And the context is provoking one another to do bad things. It's not provoking to love. There's different kinds of... So, saying the same thing here then, uh, the fruit of the Spirit really is a righteous lifestyle. It's a Christ-like lifestyle. I want you to notice now how Jesus combines the concepts of love and fruit-bearing. Fruit that lasts without even trying to make a distinction in John chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. Listen carefully to the word of God as God speaks to us right now. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. He doesn't stop just with bearing fruit, but it's fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is, this is my command, love each other. When you see this, Jesus is actually saying here then that fruit that lasts has to do with loving each other as well. Now notice, the condition for the Father giving us whatever we ask is that we will be bearing fruit that will last. This idea that we just got to ask anything, no matter what our spiritual condition is, and God will grant us, just name it and claim it, is not in keeping with the Word of God. There are conditions for this promise, and that is we might bear fruit, and the emphasis is fruit that will last. We'll talk about this later on. Jesus is saying then that the godly lifestyle of believers lends power to the verbalization of the gospel, what we call evangelism, both personal and corporate. As Paul says in the book of Titus, we adorn or we dress up and we cause the gospel to look good by the way we live. Many people make the gospel look bad by the way they live. In fact, some are claiming that's what's happening now in this referendum by certain leading pastors. They're making the gospel look bad. But now let's follow the same procedure as we did with the command to love one another. Did the apostles learn, teach, and practice the command to bear much fruit? Fruit that will last. In other words, did they hear what Jesus was saying? Did they understand what he was saying? But more importantly, that they obey what he was saying. Let's look at the word of God again. Now as I read these passages, as you read them, notice the emphasis that is placed on those one to Christ and those whom the apostles or believers in general are endeavoring to win to Christ. Notice also the emphasis on how we are to behave as Christians if our witness is to have a positive impact. In other words, 
As you read these passages, look at what Paul is saying about our relationship to the unsaved and how they are to be one to Christ. Romans 1, 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is being reported all over the world. Their faith, not their preaching, but their faith, the way they're living out what they believed. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Now notice now, he's talking about our relationship and how what we do impact those who are around us. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? Why? So that they may be saved. You see the importance of living righteously? Because it impacts the gospel we live, as well as the gospel we preach. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Follow my example. The King James says, Be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ. This version says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He was living out Christ before those to whom he was preaching. And he was depending more upon the impact of what he did, actually, than even with how he preached. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. You yourselves are our letter. Remember in the context, we talked about this when we were discussing the, uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul was saying that these faults were teaching with boasting the fact that they had commendations from other apostles, from other leaders of the church. They were boasting the fact that they had commendations from human leaders. And uh, Paul was saying that that didn't matter to him. He says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. Now remember, he didn't say here that how you attend church or how many Bible verses you know or whether you can do this or whether you can do that, whether you're involved. He didn't say that. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of what we have done among you, our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He was simply saying that your life is demonstrating the gospel. You're demonstrating Christ's likeness. Galatians 6, 9. And by the way, he says, that's the result of my ministry. You're all living Christ-like lives. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And Paul is trying to say that sometimes... It takes a little longer for certain things to happen. See, we like to think that, you know, we come here, we teach the word, we preach the Bible. He says, now, how many of you all want to commit to Christ? We don't see anybody raise their hand. Well, we have failed. Feel disappointed, dejected, because nobody has walked down the aisles. Because we have come to measure our effectiveness by how many people raise their hands or make a commitment publicly. Paul does not teach that in Scripture at all. It has to do with gradually, over a period of time, living out Christ before people as you 
as you plant the seed and you water, God will give increase in his own time. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, now notice this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Notice he says, let us do good to all people, but we have a special obligation to the people of God. Now he could have gone and said, let us be sure that we preach the gospel to all people. He says that elsewhere, but in the context of living our relationship with one another, he wants us to be sure we're demonstrating Christ's likeness. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, talking to true believers, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Notice that. It isn't only preaching the gospel or proclaiming the gospel, but it is goodness, righteousness, living righteously, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Remember now, we're trying to show what Paul is teaching based on what he has learned from Christ as to how important our lifestyle is in impacting others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. That's unbelievers. Make the most of every opportunity, every opportunity you have with outsiders, with unbelievers. Don't just waste time talking about baseball, football. Talk about Jesus Christ. Live Jesus Christ out. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. First Thessalonians 1. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from among you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. That's how Calvary Bible Church should be known in our community, by our faith. Faith that tells us we are to love one another and to care for one another and to care for those around us as well. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. Paul is saying, I don't have to find out or ask people how you're doing. They voluntarily tell us. They come up and tell us about you. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's what regeneration is all about. Turning from one God, Satan, to serve the true and living God, Jesus Christ. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. Notice this. Make talking about our relations now, how we are to live as believers to impact others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, 
just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of the unbeliever, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. But notice the emphasis, that your daily life might win the respect of unbelievers. Now, those of us who claim to be true disciples, how do you pass that test? Your daily life, does it draw respect from your neighbor, from those with whom you work? Does your lifestyle speak of Jesus Christ? Or is it one of selfishness and greed and avarice and, and so on? That's a true disciple who demonstrate Christ-likeness toward all unbelievers. First Thessalonians 2.1. I'm sorry, First Timothy 2.1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, prime ministers, and though all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's how we are supposed to be living. Godliness and holiness. That's righteous living. This is good and pleasing to God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, living out the purpose of God in your life. Without holiness, no one will see God. It's quite a powerful statement. Sometimes we can go into depth of this here, but it has to do again with accomplishing the purpose of God in your life. First Peter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans, the unsaved, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Notice the emphasis again on the impact of our lifestyle. True disciples should be living in such a way that even pagans, will, their mouths will be shut when they see the way we live, no matter how adverse they may stand against us. First Peter 2.15, for it is God's will. You want to know what God's will is? Here's one aspect of it. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. It's how we live. First Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This has to do with our relationship to the outside, to unbelievers. But, to, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed by their slander. Do you know our way of life, if it's a holy lifestyle and keeping with the word of God, actually causes individuals to be convicted of their own sin? Our righteousness can convict others of their sin. In fact, that's what Jesus teaches the Holy Spirit has to do. Him to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment to come. That's through our living righteous lives. And so here is the point. The way we live, therefore, is the platform and from which effective evangelism is to be proclaimed. Proclamation. We could say evangelism without a lifestyle to back it up 
loses much of its power. This is what Jesus and his apostles are teaching in these passages. And that's why we have repeated it again and again, because they did it and we are falling suit. Amen? So two essential areas so far. Love one another and to live a righteous lifestyle. These are essential factors for becoming effective evangelists in our community. I can see it in their eyes Empty people filled with care Headed who knows where On they go through private pain Living Laughter hides their silent cries, only Jesus hears. People need the Lord, people need the Lord at the Door. 
need the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Brother Tillman. Beautiful message. Well done. Okay, we've looked at two essential ingredients for effective evangelism as given in Scripture. Love for one another and bearing fruit that will last that has to do with living a righteous lifestyle. Now, we want to look at one final ingredient or element before we close, and that's concerning Jesus' prayer for unity among believers. Let me read, and I encourage you to look in your Bible, so look at the screen. John chapter 17, verses 18 through 23. Hear the word of God. As you sent me into the world, <clears throat> I have sent them into the world. Now, in the context, of course, he's speaking specific to his apostles, 11 of them at that time. But we can see that they, of course, include the nucleus of what we call the church today. And notice what he says, for them... I sanctify myself, I set myself apart, that they too may be truly sanctified, set apart, be holy to accomplish the purpose of God. My prayer is not for them alone. Now listen to this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who is he praying for? He's praying for everyone who's in here today who is now a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You and I are the answer to the prayer of Jesus Christ. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Message is important, but it's not the message alone. That all of them may be what? One. This is the to be the effective result of, the, of obeying the message. Being one. Just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, but the implication is, if we don't have this unity, then they will not believe that. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Tremendous statement here. That they may be one as we are one. In them, and you in, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as if you've loved me. You see the importance of unity and how it works out in if our love is demonstrated, the world will come to place faith. And he say the world, of course, those who would place faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus introduces another emphasis or concept in his methodology for the church's witness to the world of unbelievers. And that is unity among believers. And the purpose for this, he clearly spells out, is as the same as for believers to love one another and the same for them to bear much fruit. And what is that? That purpose is that unbelievers might come to know Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. When have you heard, or when last have you heard, of unity in the church being preached as an effective methodology for evangelism. But here it's essential, isn't it? 
The same way loving one another and bearing much fruit, living a righteous life is. Again, let's ask the question, did the apostles teach and sought to obey this concept as prayed by the, Jesus, by the Lord Jesus Christ? Did they attempt to answer that prayer of unity and oneness? Listen again to the word of God to these passages and note especially the emphasis upon unity among believers. Note what is said regarding the believer's attitude toward the unsaved that they're trying to win to Christ. First, Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position on another economic level than you are. Not only economic, of course, it could be other as well. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, speaking to believers now, so that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is Paul's command to the believers at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following directors, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Talking about when they met to observe the Lord's Supper, when they met for fellowship, when they met for edification. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And Paul says, I, had, I can believe that is true. That is quite an indictment upon the people of God. That when they meet, there are divisions, there are cliques in the church. That doesn't say anything good concerning the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ amongst unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. This is Paul now. Aim for perfection. Isn't that something? You see how high the standards of Christians is? Perfection. Not being mediocre, not just, just walking as close to worldly things so that you could be called a Christian. But aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now the implication is we're not walking in peace. If we are not walking in love, then the God of love and peace will not be amongst us. A God will be here, but it wouldn't be the true God. That's the implication. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Putting up with one another in love. Make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Ephesians 4.11 It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people to do the work of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach what? Unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Unity amongst God's people is an essential mark of a mature believer and a mature church. Philippians 2.2 Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being once one in spirit and one in purpose. See, the church of Jesus Christ is divided when you have the leadership going for one purpose and you have individuals in the church going for another purpose. That only causes conflict. Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Notice that. In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, would we preach. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. If the house is divided, we cannot stand, we cannot win. It's a bad reflection to the world, to the unsaved. Colossians 2.2 My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of the complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God namely Christ. Unity is important for our not knowing Christ in his fullness. First Thessalonians 5.12 Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard in love. Notice love. Because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Now, I'm not going to deal too much with this because you might be thinking I'm being biased, so I'll leave that one alone. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Now, following through then on the teaching of Jesus, the apostles emphasized the need for unity in all aspects of the believer's relationships, and he ties it in to our effectiveness in evangelism or making disciples. All of the apostles stressed the fact that unity and oneness of purpose on the part of the church are essential to the effective evangelization of our immediate community as well as of the world at large. I want to make an observation here, and you can test this out in your own mind. Seems that Satan's major strategy in the world has been, in order to hinder the spread of the gospel, has always been to destroy the testimony, the love, and the unity of God's people. That's where he has majored. The compelling reason for the creation of the ecumenical movement, in fact, with all of its negative connotations, in the beginning, it was the disunity of Christian churches. They used to go around the world and they used to see mission boards fighting against each other on the mission field. And there's disunity. And that is one of the reasons why the, the, the ecumenical movement came about. Now it's gone very crazy, but that was an initial movement. It was a good one. Their infighting on the mission fields of the world was a hindrance to reaching the loss for Jesus Christ. And that is still true today. Not only on mission field, it is true as far as the local churches are concerned. When you have people fighting in the churches, it affects evangelism, you see. 
When you have church fighting against church, it affects evangelism. Today, the words of the pastors, the words of the church mean very little of anything to Bahamian people. Some of the most despised and disrespected people in the Bahamas are pastors. Isn't that a shame? But it is true nonetheless, you see. And that is a hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's my conclusion then. Based on these passages in the word of God. God's methodology for evangelizing the lost, both at home and abroad, is the utilization and mobilization of communities of redeemed people called local churches, such as Calvary Bible Church, who demonstrate Christ-motivated love, spirit-motivated unity, and a biblically-motivated lifestyle to effectively verbalize or proclaim the gospel to the unsaved. In other words, it involves both being and doing by proclamation. The proclamation being based upon and motivated by what we are, who we are, our being. In the early days of the church, God confirmed his existence and Christ's deity through signs and wonders. Today, in places where the church has already been established, he confirms that message primarily through people in relationship. Perhaps those people who love each other and who live like Jesus Christ through the enablement of the Holy Spirit and obedience to the word of God. In other words, I believe that one of the greatest miraculous things that can be seen by the world today is God's people in the local church loving God, loving one another, living righteously, and bringing fruit that lasts in their lives. Inherent within these miraculous events, believers living one, believers loving one another, believers living a righteous lifestyle, and believers being united in life and ministry, that's a dynamic that is a miraculous in its power to convince the lost that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, the savior of the world. These, I believe, are the essential ingredients in effective evangelism, and unfortunately, they're not emphasized. Instead, we put all kinds of things, other things, doing this, using this method, using that method, in order to proclaim the gospel. But I believe it's these three essentials. God's people loving him, loving one another as Christ loved us, being united, and living a righteous lifestyle that brings forth fruit that remain. So the way that you and I live tells us whether or not we are going to be effective in evangelism and whether or not true disciples will be developed in our midst. So let me close with this application. You have it there on your outline. Is there anything in your life as a Christian that is interfering with the love and unity that God wants to be seen, exhibited, by the people at Calvary Bible Church. Is there anything in your life as a Christian that is interfering with the love and unity that God wants to see exhibited by his people at Calvary Bible Church? Now let's take a few moments of quiet reflection, please. Allow the Spirit of God to continue to speak to your life and to your heart and to your mind. If you believe that there's anything in your life that causes a hindrance to the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ, either because of lack of love or lack of unity or the fact that your life is not being lived righteously, 
Would you acknowledge that to God right now who you are? You don't have to acknowledge it to me, but acknowledge to God. You don't have to raise your hand. God knows your heart. Just acknowledge it to him and let the Spirit of God do his work. So ask yourself this question. Is there anything in my life as a Christian that is interfering with the love and unity that God wants to see exhibited amongst the believers at Calvary Bible Church? If the yes, if that's it is, indicate it, write it down, or spell it about in your own mind and ask God's forgiveness for it. And then also indicate and decide right now before God how you plan to correct it. You must begin with confession. And remember this wonderful truth. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there is something, it may be something that you have to put right with another believer. I was so thankful that even this week I had a call from a brother who felt that he had harmed me by what he said and he asked forgiveness. That's what God wants. That's what pleases God. How would you plan to correct what you feel is a hindrance in your own life? Plan the time that you're going to do it. Plan how you're going to do it. Make sure that you don't only decide to do it here, but that you've carried it through as well. God is looking for love, for unity, and for righteous lifestyle. If we can together purpose to live in that fashion, our proclamation of the gospel will be effective in this community, in this nation, and the world as well. Father, thank you for your word. We accept it for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. May those of us who've made any kind of commitment before you silently be enabled by your spirit to follow through on those commitments. We ask these blessings in our Savior's name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you very much.